always, to be here with you. Looks like it's shaping up to be a lovely day, looking out the window. Hopefully it'll be a really lovely afternoon. I've already spent some time this morning thinking about what uh, me, Steph and Eva might do this afternoon. There's talk of going to the zoo, so that'll be exciting. That sounds like a general invitation. It's not a general invitation. Uh, that would just be for the three of us, I'm afraid. But uh, uh, last Sunday, after church, uh, we went to Steph's parents' house. We went to Stephen Tracy's for for dinner. Uh, if I remember correctly, we had roast duck. It was delicious. Uh, after the roast duck, um, I managed to convince Steve, my father-in-law, to join me at the pub. Took a lot of persuasion. And uh, we went to watch the final of the 2020 World Cup uh, for cricket. Cricket is a holy sport, so it's good to watch it on the Sabbath. You have to trust me on that one. Alan's nodding, Trixie's shaking her head. Uh, we'll talk later about that one. But uh, we went to the pub to watch this game. It was an excellent game of cricket to watch. Uh, unfortunately, England lost in the last, uh, within the last few balls, but it was a really great game to watch. And then at the end of the game, they did, uh, you know, after, after sports matches and games, they do the interviews with team captains and, and that sort of stuff. And they interviewed the West Indies captain, a guy called Darren Sammy. And he said, he said first of all, he said, I just want to give thanks to the Almighty. He said, I want to give thanks to God. He said, as a team, we've got a pastor in the team and we uh, spend a lot of time praying. We're a praying team. And I, get, I looked at Steve and Steve looked at me and we just gave each other a little knowing nod. Just like, isn't it great to hear someone speaking like that in front of an international audience? But as Darren Sammy was saying these things, there was a, a number of people in the, in the pub we were in who started laughing and sniggering and making comments in kind of a kind of belittling what, what was being said. And to be honest, I didn't I wasn't offended by it. It wasn't something that particularly bothered me as such. But as a Christian, for me, prayer plays such an important part in my relationship with God. It is absolutely foundational and fundamental in my relationship with God. And I was thinking, but actually to the world, is prayer seen as something that's irrelevant or unimportant? That's certainly the feeling I got when we were watching the game last weekend. At the start of this year, there was an online petition that was set up to, to ban Christian prayers from the beginning of county council meetings in Wales because they were seen to be divisive, so they wanted to ban them. In 2014, users on a parenting website claimed that the traditional school nativity play is under pressure to modernise the story and to get rid of the religious figures. That's the pressure that they said that they felt there was. Christmas plays are now being called things like winter celebrations. The word Christmas is being forced out. Don Horrocks from the Evangelical Alliance, they represent evangelical Christians, he warned that it was either extreme political correctness or perhaps it reflects a nation too embarrassed to face up to its Christian heritage. That was his input and his insight into that situation. In November 2014, as a high school in Colorado in the States, they banned a group of students from praying, singing Christian songs and, discussion and discussing religious topics in their free time. They banned them from doing that in their free time. Officials for the school, they cited separation of church and state as the reason behind their decision, that they felt there had to be the separation between church and the state, so they banned them in their free time. There's an article uh, that you can find on the, the Spectator website. It was written the end of, end of March of this year. And in that article, it says that according to the International Society for Human Rights, which is a secular observatory based in Frankfurt in Germany, 
It says that 80% of all acts of religious discrimination in the world today are directed at Christians. 80%. So statistically speaking, that makes Christians by far the most persecuted religious body on the planet. According to the Pew Forum, between 2006 and 2010, Christians faced some form of discrimination in a staggering total of 139 nations. It's almost three quarters of all the countries on earth. According to the Centre for Study of Global Christianity of Gordon Cornwell Theological Seminary in Massachusetts, it's quite a long name, but according to their study, an average of 100,000 Christians have been killed in what the Centre calls a situation of witness each year for the past decade. 100,000 Christians killed each year for the last 10 years. That works out to 11 Christians killed somewhere in the world every hour, seven days a week, 365 days a year for reasons related to their faith. I'm aiming to talk for about half an hour this morning. So on average, it'll be five to six Christians being killed within that space of time, on average. I've got to admit, this might not be the most humorous, uplifting or cheerful introduction to a sermon that you've ever heard. But the reason why I've started in this way is because it highlights a very important reality. And that reality is that following Christ and obeying his commands makes us different. It makes us different from the, from the rest of the world around us. I think we live in societies and nations where Christianity is no longer generally accepted or seen as acceptable. That seems to be what's coming through, through what we hear and what we see and what we experience ourselves. We live in a time of opposition and hostility towards Christianity's claims, towards its values, towards its ethics. And the church... I think is seen as irrelevant to many. Irrelevant and unnecessary of no importance. This morning we're starting a new series. And in this series, over the coming weeks, over the coming months, we're going to be exploring the book of 1 Peter together, really digging in to that book. 1 Peter is the first letter of Peter. It was a letter sent out to the early church. And it was sent out at a time of hostility towards Christian ethics. Christians and the church were being marginalised in the sense that, again, being seen as insignificant, being pushed to the periphery, being pushed to the edge of things, seen as irrelevant and, and just so countercultural to the way that the rest of the world lives. So hopefully now the reason for my introduction is becoming a little clearer. There's a book, excellent book, called One Peter for You. It's a commentary. Uh, that's been written by a guy called Juan Sanchez. Really easy to get into and to understand and to, and to grapple with. And in his introduction in the book, when he's talking about this letter that Peter wrote, he says that here is a letter written to churches like ours about a time such as ours. Peter's first letter is one we need to read, one we need to treasure and believe in our day. Because the post-Christian societies that many of us live in now are very much like the pre-Christian society in which Peter's first century readers lived then. Got the similarities between the church now and the societies we live in now and the first century early churches in that pre-Christian society. Sanchez finishes his introduction by saying this. He says, here is a letter for today. So that's why over these, I think it's about 11 or 12 weeks, we're going to really get into this book that Peter wrote because the letter that he wrote is as much for today as it was then. As we go through the letter, 
think what we'll see is that there's a recurring theme of suffering and opposition and trial that comes up time and time again. It seems to be very much at the heart of what Peter's wanting to communicate and what Peter's wanting to address for the church to encourage them in that uh, and to, to kind of explain a bit of what's going on. But it's also a book that contains an awful lot of practical wisdom and practical counsel on a variety of areas, such as marriage, work, in how we're to relate to the government, in how we're to be a witness to unbelievers, counsel in how to use spiritual gifts, and how elders and overseers are meant to serve. So me and Mike have to make sure we're there for that week. So it's a letter that's full of a lot of challenge. I think it can be a bit gritty, very real, in the sense that it faces up to the way the world sees the church and the way the church is meant to live in the world. But as I've read through the letter, as I've spent some time thinking about it, this is a letter that is full of love, hope, joy, comfort, security, victory, glory, and the beauty of the church. It is really an excellent thing for us to be studying together and exploring together. So say it's a letter that contains some very challenging, very sobering, perhaps even intimidating truths and lessons uh, that, Pete, that Peter sets out. Uh, for me, as the person who sets the preaching schedule, I get to decide who preaches on these difficult, uh, difficult topics. So a bit, of a, <laughs> a bit of a benefit there, but I have made sure I've got my fair share of them as well over these coming weeks. So, as I say, we're going to be exploring this letter together over these 12 weeks. So let's get going with that this morning. We're going to spend some time, if you've got your Bibles with you, if you can turn to the book of 1 Peter or 1 Peter, depending on how you would like to say that. As you're finding your way there, what we're going to be looking at this morning is Peter's introduction to the letter. It's his opportunity to introduce himself, to say who he is, to make himself known, but also to address his audience, to address those who are going to read the letter and those who are going to hear the letter. And I think Peter's introduction to the letter also provides us with an excellent introduction to the series because it lays down some solid foundations upon which the rest of the series is going to be built. We're going to be looking at just two verses this morning, but they're two verses that are full of profound truth as the starting point of the letter and as a starting point of our series. So if you've got your Bibles, if you'd like to read with me, if you're sitting next to someone who hasn't got a Bible, be kind and let them read with you. Uh, that would be wonderful. So we're going to read the first two verses of 1 Peter chapter 1, which says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So Peter starts, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter had spent time with Jesus. He was very familiar with him. He'd spent three years with him, sharing life together. Uh, he was familiar with his teaching, with Jesus' life, ministry, the miracles that he performed, and with his death and with his resurrection. He ate meals with him. They shared barbecues together. They spent time enjoying being with one another. And he had seen Jesus after his death and after his resurrection. He was one of the first witnesses to the resurrected Jesus. He knew Jesus really well. He knew Jesus very well. He was his friend. And he was his disciple. So he was taught by Jesus. He followed him. He observed the things that Jesus was doing. And he took on the teaching that Jesus gave. 
And Jesus got him and the other disciples involved in the ministry as well. There were things for them to be doing as they spent this time with Jesus. As one of 12 apostles, Peter, he was sent out by Jesus. Apostles, they're messengers that are sent out. And Peter was sent out with the other apostles by Jesus to announce the good news of salvation to the world. The good news that through Jesus, people can know God and can be known by him. That was the message that they were given to take out. Peter wasn't always known as Peter. Actually, when we're first introduced to him in the scriptures, uh, he's called Simon Peter, but Jesus changes his name. He calls him Peter, uh, which means rock. Peter means rock. In Matthew 16, verse 18, we read of when Jesus um, establishes his name, and he says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So for Peter and the other apostles... They were used by Jesus to establish and to build the church. And the church was to be built upon the truth of who Jesus is and of the good news of what he has done. So in his introduction, quite a short introduction there, introducing himself. But Peter establishes the authority in which he's writing, which is is of real importance. Because he's saying that the authority that he is writing in is authority that has been given to him by Jesus. And that we can have confidence in what Peter writes. We can have confidence in his teaching and in the way he's instructing the church to live. Because it would have flowed out of the time that he would have spent with Jesus. It would have flowed out of his understanding of what Jesus had been teaching him and what he had witnessed himself. So Peter has introduced himself and now he comes to address his audience. It's quite an interesting um, address full of quite a few interesting names and, and words. It says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So the the places that Peter names, that he specifically mentions by name, they're Roman provinces in a region called Asia Minor, which today... Uh, if we were to look at a map, it would be in modern-day Turkey. So it's that sort of area that we're looking at. The letter would have, would have done the round. So it would have gone round the churches, so they would have each have had their opportunity to hear what was taught. So it would have gone around these churches. At the, in, at the start of this address, Peter says to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, the dispersion seems a very specific word. For him to use. So we have to understand exactly what the dispersion is about to understand why Peter used it and again why it is so important in this context. So we're going to have to do a little bit of a history lesson here. Between 597 538 BC, the nation of Israel, God's holy people, a people that he had chosen for himself, he'd said, You will be my people and I will be your God. They were dear to God's heart, he was their God. And this nation of Israel, between those years I mentioned, they were held in captivity by the, by the Babylonians. So they were exiled from their homeland and held in captivity from the Babylonians. They'd been separated from their home, unable to return. Once it was possible for them to return back to, to Israel, many of them remained scattered throughout the Persian Empire. And then beyond that, then later throughout the Greek and the Roman Empires, and it's the scattering of, of, of the Jewish people, it's a scattering of the nation of Israel that is known as the diaspora. Hopefully I've pronounced that fairly closely. Or where we get the word the dispersion. So this word the dispersion when it was used would have been understood 
by many of the people uh, who, who would have been reading this letter, they would have understood it to have been the dispersion of the people after the exile and the captivity by the Babylonians. So as I say, it seems like a really specific term to use. Peter must have had a point and a purpose in using it. And in using terms like the dispersion, using words like exiles, what Peter is doing is he's identifying his readers with Israel. He's identifying his readers as part of God's chosen people. But he's not just speaking to the, to the Jewish Christians. And I don't think he's just speaking of a literal geographical exile, because now the term has been given a, a spiritual sense. It's been given a spiritual dimension to it. In a few weeks, we're going to be looking, we'll come across this verse in 1 Peter 1, verse 18. And Peter's writing to, to the Christians at this point, he's writing to the church, and he's saying that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. He's saying the way you used to live, the world that you used to belong to, the way that you were brought up, uh, and the, the way that you did life, actually you've been ransomed from that. That's not the way that you're to live anymore. You're going to leave those things behind and to live another way. So there was that expectation that actually the way of doing things before is no longer the way of doing things now and moving on. Even further on in 1 Peter, chapter 4, verse 4, Peter's speaking of the unbelievers, so he's speaking of the people around the churches who would have been having contact with the Christians there. And Peter says that for the unbelievers, that they are surprised when, the, when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. So essentially the churches aren't engaging with the society and the culture around them in the sense that they're not doing the things that they used to do. They're not doing the things that were commonplace and seen as acceptable in the societies around them. And because of that, there's something that's surprising to the rest of the world about that. But again, it's this idea that the way that you used to be is no longer the way that you are to be. It's leaving those things behind. In coming to faith in Christ, we no longer conform to the way that we once lived. A huge part of coming to Christ is leaving behind the old way of living where we were worshipping things other than God, serving ourselves first and foremost, doing things that were offensive to God, and it's turning from that old way of life and actually deciding to follow Jesus, to be obedient to Jesus and to live the way that he calls us to. But we still live, in the, geographically, we still live in this same place. We still live in the same earth, surrounded by the same people in the same communities. But we now live in the world that we once lived. But again, with this sense of this word exiles, uh, in the sense that we're living away from, from where we belong. But in a spiritual sense, we're living away from our heavenly homeland. We're, we're now citizens of heaven. We've got an eternity secure with God. That's where our residence is. That's where our home is. We've got a heavenly homeland. But at the moment, it's like we're living as strangers in the world that we once lived, yet not living the way that we did. So for the Christian, this world is not their home. They're temporary residents just passing through. So I found that a really helpful way to think about it. We're just, res we're just temporary residents just passing through. One day to reach that, that heavenly homeland. Now, I was looking at the requirements for UK citizenship, not for myself. I am a UK citizen, but as part of my research uh, for this morning. And in terms of applying for citizenship through naturalisation, there are certain criteria that have to be fulfilled. You have to be over 18. You have to fulfil the good character requirement. You need to meet the knowledge of English requirement. 
and the life in the UK requirement, which is a, it's a, a test. I think it's of about 24 questions that you have to, to, to answer about life in the UK. And you need to meet the residency requirement. You have to fulfil requirements of character and knowledge, then you can apply for citizenship. So applying for, um, applying for citizenship begins with prove that you are acceptable and then we will consider whether you can become a citizen. So it's behaviour and knowledge first. If you fulfil that, then you become, can become a citizen. Peter begins his letter not with a list of what to do and what not to do, not with a list of this is how you should behave, this is what good uh, Christian living looks like, these are the things that you need to understand. He comes to those things later, but that is not his starting point. He starts with the truth of who they are. He starts with the truth of who the Christians are. There's a guy named Michael Eaton, he wrote a commentary on, on this book, and he says that in the way in which Peter addresses his friends, he is telling them something about their position as God's people. This is the Bible's way of approaching the preaching of holiness because it begins by telling Christians who they are and what has happened to them. That is the starting point. The world talks a lot about what we must do. The Bible gives specific instructions, but it never begins with a list of what to do and what not to do. It begins by telling us who we are. And Peter describes to his readers in detail because he wants to underline certain things that will encourage them. He wants them to know that they are able to live a godly life but it comes out of a position of understanding who they are. We are God's exiles. We're foreigners in a hostile land. To me, that's a really helpful way of understanding the, the things I was going through in my introduction. It makes sense. We're foreigners in the hostile land. We're passing through. Because we're those who identify themselves with Christ. But we're not merely exiles. Peter says that we are elect exiles. We're elected. We are chosen by God. But we're not chosen because of anything we've done, not because of any qualities, particular qualities that we have, but because he has set his love on us. That is the requirement for being chosen, because God has set his love on us. Peter says we've been chosen according to the Father's foreknowledge. So it's on the part of the Father. He's the one who's chosen us. Now, to foreknow, it's not just about God knowing a fact, not just about God will know something's going to happen, that people are going to respond, people are, are, are going to uh, follow Jesus. It's not just about knowing a fact, but it's about, knowing his, it's about his knowing people. Foreknowledge isn't just about knowing a fact, but it's about knowing people with a personal, loving, fatherly love. Wayne Gruden another theologian and author, when talking about according to the foreknowledge, he puts it in a way that I found incredibly helpful. He says that it suggests according to God's fatherly care for you before the world was made. Isn't that a really wonderful way of understanding it? According to God's fatherly care for you before the world was made, he chose you. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 6 says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. It was in love that he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's what it means to be elect. 
It's what it means to be chosen. That God would choose people for salvation can be an uncomfortable or difficult thing to talk about. It raises an awful lot of questions if God is choosing people for himself. But this is the way that Peter starts his letter. And the reason Peter begins his letter in this way is because it is a huge encouragement and a reminder to his readers that their suffering does not mean that God has forgotten them. Sanchez, who I mentioned earlier, he says that we can stand firm in the grace of God because the God who chooses us is the God who brings about the very salvation he offers. If before the creation of the world, God chose you, and if he sent his son to die for you, he is hardly going to let you go now. What a, again, a wonderful encouragement. If before the creation of the world, God chose you, if he sent his son to die for you, he is hardly going to let you go now. And this is what Peter is saying to the church. Yes, you're going through opposition, you're going through suffering, you're going through trial, but you've been chosen. And if God has chosen you, if God has sent his son to die for you, then he is not going to leave you in the midst of it. So believers, Christians are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. To be sanctified means to be set apart. To be set apart as holy. Something that's free from sin. What Peter's saying here is it's the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us. It's the Holy Spirit who brings about the initial break from the love and power of sin when we become a part of, part of the people of God. When we become a follower of Jesus, part of God's chosen people, there's a break that happens. The love and power of sin is broken. We've been set apart. And it's a work of the Holy Spirit. But there's also an ongoing work of sanctification in our lives that the Holy Spirit produces in us. And what the Holy Spirit does is he makes us increasingly like Jesus. Makes us increasingly like Jesus. In holiness, in faith and in love. That's what the Holy Spirit does. So Holy Spirit sanctifies us. He sets us apart as holy. But then there's an ongoing process of becoming more and more like Jesus. That the Holy Spirit brings about in our lives. This is just the picture that Peter's building up in his introduction. Building up the people of the truth of who they are. And of what God has done for them. So they're elect exiles. Chosen by God, according to the foreknowledge of, his father, of the Father, before the foundation of the world, they were chosen. In the sanctification of the Spirit, so set apart as holy, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. It's the Holy Spirit who sets us apart in order that we respond with obedience to the gospel, to repent of our sins and to trust in Christ. To leave the old way of living behind, to repent is to turn from the way that we were living, to be obedient to Christ and to trust in him. So there's obedience in, the initial, uh, in our initial decision of repentance and trusting in God. But again, there's an ongoing uh, factor that goes on here as well. There's an ongoing obedience to Jesus that the Holy Spirit enables us to do. Having been set apart, we're obedient to Jesus' teaching, to his leading and his prompting. It's what should characterise the Christian life is obedience to Christ. And it's the Holy Spirit again who enables us to do that. Ephesians 1, I read uh, a couple of verses from there earlier. read from 4 to 6. We're going to pick up from verse 7. Because it carries on, it says that in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth it is in Jesus that we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our sins in the Old Testament so in the period of time before Jesus comes on the scene in in terms of his his incarnation and coming to dwell amongst us as a man the image of sprinkled blood we see throughout the Old Testament and it's a reminder that a sacrifice had been made so the image of sprinkling blood was a reminder to God and a reminder to his people that a sacrifice had been made it's through Christ's sacrifice that believers' sins are washed away by his blood. But it's also, there's also, uh, um, by the ongoing sprinkling with the blood of Christ, that our relationship with God and our relationship with his people is restored. Because if we're totally honest, if all of us are honest, we're not always obedient. We're all prone to failings. If anyone says that that doesn't describe them, then I wouldn't believe them. Because we're all prone to disobedience. We're all prone to failing. And still, sin still manages to, to have an impact on our lives now. But the sprinkling of the blood of Christ, again, is this picture, this constant reminder to us that our sins are forgiven. That our relationship with the Father has been restored. That our relationship with the Father, with God, and with his people has been restored. What a beautiful picture that Peter, Peter has described to the church in just a couple of verses stating who they are in addressing his audience Peter presents this beautiful picture of God as father, son and spirit each with a different action each with a different function but uniting to secure and accomplish our great salvation and the ongoing outworking of salvation in our lives father, son and spirit all uniting all working together for our salvation and the outworking of that in our day-to-day lives. Can the band come up? We're going to move into a time of worship. We're going to come and praise our God for who he is and for what he's done for us. For the position that we have as his people, as his beloved. That our salvation and our security is entirely a work of his initiated and accomplished by him but while the band are getting set up I just want to say the first letter of Peter what we'll find over the coming weeks is that it does give specific instructions that there are there's a lot of teaching in there about the way that we're to be the way we're to engage with the world the way that we're to engage with one another but it doesn't begin with a list of what to do and what not to do it begins by telling us who we are and we have to be reminded of who we are Because that is where our life and our lifestyle and our behaviour and our character flows out from that point. See, in a time of opposition and hostility, having reminded the church of their true position and identity, Peter is then able to say, having established who they are, he's then able to say, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Isn't that amazing? In the midst of conflict, in the midst of hostility, in the midst of opposition... Peter is able to say, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. How much must the church then have needed that? How much does the church now need the grace and peace of God?
But that comes having reminded the church of their true position and identity. That's where our security is. That's where our comfort is. That's where our confidence is. Shall we stand? We have so many reasons to come and worship and praise our God.